Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking peak oil, geopolitics, and a very uncertain world. Our guest is Doomberg. Doomberg is one of the most popular substacks focusing on energy, economics, and finance. As always, you can really support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on. It really does help drive the podcast to a broader audience, which in turn allows us to get great guests. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Doomberg, welcome back to the show. Paul, great to be back with you. It's been too long. It has, it has. And in that spirit, we're essentially doing a bit of a catch up on some of the key articles that have caught my eye that you've been publishing on your Substack over the last quarter and a little bit more. The first one that I really wanted to tackle was you, you've written a lot, put a lot of thought into this peak oil, right? And essentially, you know, all of us have been stalked the last 20 years by theories around peak oil. There's been some morphing of that into peak demand, but can you just sort of, I guess, set the scene for us about what sparked your interest in the theories around peak oil and essentially your thesis about why it's not happening? You bet. So we should begin by making the distinction between a short-term call on energy market balances and whether there will be sufficient, ample, cheap supply of hydrocarbons for decades to come. And of course, given the cyclical nature of commodities and the mismatch between their investment cycle and the business cycle and the extreme price elasticity of demand of such critical commodities, we often cycle between periods of excess and periods of glut. And we often say that the single most important question an analyst must ponder uh, when looking at the economy, for example, is, is this economy suffering from a shortage of energy, or, or are they experiencing a useful glut? To that end, the concept of peak cheap oil has always been around. As you mentioned, it's as old as the discovery of oil itself. People have been worried about running out of it. And yet, by some miracle, the trajectory of the global production and therefore consumption of oil is an upward moving line with a sort of a, a sine wave feature to it that grows at about 2% per year forever. And we see nothing on the horizon that would change that. Now, that does not mean that if the industry doesn't invest enough or politics interferes hard enough, that we might go through a period of a year or 18 months where it sure feels like we're in peak cheap oil. But time and time again, history teaches us that the market incentives work and the industry will respond. Political obstacles will be wiped away. Technology will continue to evolve. And so, too, will our definition of oil. So in the piece you're referencing, which caused a bit of a stir, it must be said, much to our surprise, uh, we made four main arguments. And I'll cover them briefly and then happy to go in any direction that sparks your interest. The first is that we as a society radically underestimate the technical power embedded within the fossil fuel industry. We think of them as old, slow, stodgy commodity operators, when in reality, there are scores of thousands of brilliant PhDs and engineers and chemists and geologists and field technicians and so on that do the dizzying array of work that make modern life possible. And it would be nice if we treated them with a bit more respect once in a while. But the work they do 
and the def deflationary impact on the cost of production is really profound, uh, often underestimated, and certainly taken for granted. Second, the vast majority of the constraints that currently exist to the exploitation and development of a vast array of conventional and unconventional hydrocarbon resources are political in the sense that you know, the entire offshore Florida is, is off limits to drilling, just as one small example. We, we have extreme political opposition to you know, fully exploiting the resources on offer in Alaska. Now, in different parts of the world, governments have a different stance, and we see that there's a high degree of correlation between a government's desire to produce hydrocarbons and the amount they end up doing. Our argument is if we entered a true crisis of supply and price shot up to 150 or 200 or, heaven forbid, even $300 a barrel, such political opposition would be quickly wiped away. The human endeavor shall not be denied and certainly not denied by relatively weak politicians like the slate we have in charge of most Western countries today. They would be swept aside and all manner of barriers to the production of hydrocarbons would be taken down. The, the third argument that we made is that the definition of oil is widening. And in fact, the arc of history shows that um, what we call oil is, is undergoing a subtle semantic shift. This, again, is a consequence of technology and, and the ability of the chemists and chemical engineers in our refining sector, which we have a broad definition of, to, to use whatever input is cheaply available and convert it into the final products that we like. And we could go down that rabbit hole. And then finally, if you measure the long-term price of oil, either in ounces of gold, which is our preferred way to correct for currency debasement, or if you will, perhaps more conservatively, um, divide the price of oil by inflation indices, you see that we are in an extended period of time since the 2008 financial crisis, basically, where the price of oil is in the, the bottom third of where it has been historically. If you look at the 50-year chart of oil adjusted for inflation, you see precious little market indications that were anywhere near a supply crisis. And so there's a lot of hype around this idea. There's some people who have perhaps a vested interest in maintaining this myth. But in our view, over the decades, there will be as much oil as we choose to exploit. Yeah, cogently argued. I guess sort of... One question from me would be, obviously, there has been a seismic shift in some of the incentives, though, and that's particularly tied to expectations around the energy transition. You've got various independent bodies and so forth talking about peak demand at some point in the 2030s. And a lot of these investments are multiple decades in order to pay off, you know, how does that then factor in? I, you know, obviously the, the the technology and the political will will change. And there is a real price shock, but this isn't a this is a pretty slow moving ship in ability to turn it round. So, how does that factor into the, the? I guess we're talking more temporal here, but that could have a profound effect on the ne the end of this decade. Sure, which is why we began by carefully defining the time horizons to which we were addressing. Yeah, but I would characterize what you have just described as just one variant of political opposition. This fantasy that five to six billion people on the planet will be able to develop to even a, a, a modest lifestyle without the continued growth of fossil fuels is, is frankly uh, intellectual nonsense. And beyond that, the demand for fossil fuels is infinite at a reasonable price. 
And so I don't spend much time worrying about demand. And this thought that somehow these investments will be obsolete is, is truly happy talk of know-nothings. There's no other way to say it. You know, that there's a, a billion people uh, in Asia who would kill to have a, a quarter of the lifestyle that fossil fuels have enabled for us in the West. And, and we're very privileged to enjoy that lifestyle. And frankly, it comes at us so easily that it, it it's becomes simple to take it for granted. You know, energy comes from a switch and lights always come on when you flick it. That's not how the real world works. Mm. Uh, and so this green energy transition, look what, hap look, look what happened at COP28. I mean, we, we have characterized COP28 as marking peak uh, ESG. Uh, just look around Europe today. Uh, which country has been the leader in trying to execute the green energy transition? Well, that's Germany. What's going on in Germany today as we record this? Protests all over Berlin. The government's poll ratings are in the tank. If an election were held today, at least one of the members of the traffic light coalition probably wouldn't score enough votes to even remain in parliament. And you see the rise of this far-right AFD party, which we think is a milestone for political upheaval uh, in Western Europe in general, and Germany in particular. This is the, the perfectly expected and predicted, because we did, consequence of getting your energy policy wrong. These political leaders who, who steered Germany wrong will eventually be wiped out of power, either at the ballot box or, heaven forbid, uh, through a violent revolution. And, and this is the way it always works. Um, if you starve people of energy, you are literally robbing them of life. Energy is life. Your standard of living is defined by how much energy you personally get to harvest. All humans everywhere want a higher standard of living. Therefore, barriers to extracting that energy will be wiped away. And the ultimate luxury of the, of the Western wealthy elite to sit around and ponder whether um, hydrocarbons are some sort of option this is a truly a, a temporary accident of history that would be the first thing to go at the first sign of a true crisis. Uh, it's in, you know, talking of COP28, you sort of highlight there that there is this sort of shift globally back to sort of some sense of realism about at least the near-term future and the fact that the world does need this energy. Can you just comment a bit more on that? And, and secondly, as well, as typified by Germany as the Just Stop Oil campaigns globally, you know, there is somewhat of a disconnect between generations, between parties and so forth about the ability for us to turn off oil on the one side and, and on the other side, some of the impacts and ramifications and obviously the energy, trans, you know, the, the climate change itself. The, you know that's set up as a really challenging political situation where there's no there's no sort of it seems to me there's little common ground in the center about how to forge these and you see obviously the democrats in the u.s struggling with that recognizing the need to grow the energy capacity of the country against an electorate that really doesn't want to do that yeah i think this uh, highlights something that we've been writing about for some time and especially your your comments about you know just stop oil and perhaps the upcoming generation have, have a different view. First of all, it's perfectly understandable that they have this view because they have been sold what we call the big lie. And the big lie is that we can remove ourselves from our dependence on fossil fuels with minimal impact on our current standard of living. And that is provably untrue. Physics is undeniable. We, we cannot transition away from fossil fuels on any time frame that matters, 
climate models notwithstanding, without crushing the current standard of living of much of the West and simultaneously, and perhaps even more morally repugnant, stifling the development of the global South. You just can't do it. And the longer we continue to peddle this big lie, especially to the younger generation, the harder it will be to re-educate them. The realities of the situation must eventually be confronted. Now, as it pertains to COP28 and your references to a bit of a reconciliation with reality, uh, we do see what we would characterize as green shoots of logic beginning to emerge, much to the chagrin of those on the far environmental left, of which we would include the likes of Just Stop Oil. Uh, but there was a grand bargain that came out of COP28 in our view, and it looks something like this. In the West, coal will be phased out and will be replaced by natural gas. The developing world will continue to burn coal to improve its standard of living. There was no talk of meaningfully restricting China's plans, for example, or India's plans, or Indonesia's plans, or Pakistan's plans. Where possible, carbon capture and sequestration will be used to minimize direct CO2 emissions globally, and we would be the first to support such efforts. The biggest thing to come out of COP28 was an industry commitment to minimize methane emissions. I think this will have a real and tangible impact on the, the future trajectory of global warming gas emissions, especially when you correct for how much higher a, a global warming potential gas methane is compared to CO2. Mm. Only by 2030, though. I mean, it's, it's quite an extended time. Uh, yeah, but you'd be, you'd be surprised. I think if you challenge industry... By the way, I mean, methane's role in the atmosphere dissipates rather quickly, and so once we've solved it, it's, it's, it's going to be analogous to once we handled the, the fluorocarbon situation and, and the ozone hole back in the 80s. This will be solved once and solved forever. Then the last two points uh, is nuclear power will be accelerated. I think that one of the biggest readouts of COP28 is that nuclear is finally and definitively labeled as clean, and the old-school Malthusian opposition to civilian elemental energy is, is dying away. And then the West will continue to tinker around with solar and wind and electric vehicles, pretending as though these are going to have a meaningful impact anytime soon. And in our view, that is, from an investor lens, the broad strokes of the spoken and unspoken agreement that came out of COP28. Moving on, you write also a lot, obviously, about geopolitics and how that impacts the broader economy as well as, obviously, the energy economy. And that is one thing that is going to probably be different going forwards versus the last 20 years, as we've talked a lot about on this podcast, is a lot of the assumptions about how the oil markets operate and the energy markets more broadly are based on efficient flows, efficient markets, and so forth. That is changing. Can you sort of, I guess, set us the scene on, on, on where you see that today? And then you've also written a lot, quite interestingly, about, you know, OPEC has obviously dominated most of the producing countries to date, but we could see some shifting alliances, or some of them are quite seem far off. But the power of you talk about if if the Western Hemisphere really had its own oil producing alliance and, and the impact that could have. Can you just? I know that's a lot in that question, but I'd love to get your take on the geopolitics of oil. Yeah, fascinating question, and uh, let me start by saying it's a great bridge from the last discussion because imagine where the price of oil and natural gas would be today if we didn't have a hot war between, you know, a hot proxy war on the, on the edge of Europe's doorstep between nuclear superpowers or a kinetic conflict set to perhaps expand all across the Middle East and tensions between 
China and Taiwan, despite all of those geopolitical tensions, oil is still trading in the low $70 a barrel, at least WTI. Imagine if peace broke out, uh, or imagine if Russia and China and the U.S. got together and decided to collaborate hmm. instead of you know the, this agenda of war that seems um, ever ever omnipresent. And so, uh, but there is undoubtedly a major shift in geopolitics that does impact energy, and we believe this is all born from the U.S. shale revolution. You know, if you look at the geopolitical strategy of the U.S. in the post-domestic peak oil of the 1970s, the intellectual elite in government in the U.S. believed in peak oil and believed in Hubbard's peak. And in fact, the data would, would buttress that belief because the U.S. slowly began to decline its oil production until the Shell Revolution. And so as a consequence of the U.S. being a net energy importer of size, it had precious little choice but to use its blue water navy to police the world and allow the efficient flow of energy because the U.S. needed it. With the advent of shale, the U.S. is by far the largest energy producer in the world, number one natural gas producer by a wide margin, number one producer of oil and petroleum products by an even, well, not an even wider margin, but a, a similar margin. In fact, when you look at natural gas, natural gas liquids, condensates, and oil, just since 2010, the U.S. has added the equivalent of two and a half Saudi Arabias. Yeah. Um, it's, it's stunning. And that radically shakes the underpinning need for the U.S. to police the world trade. And in fact, in the Middle East today, puzzling as it might sound, we're basically protecting the flow of energy from the Middle East to China. We have enough of our own stuff. And if we just made a few minor tweaks, like getting rid of the Jones Act in the U.S. or treating our neighbors in the Western Hemisphere with mutual respect and collaboration, we could very quickly you know, sh shake our hands of the whole thing and, and wish everybody a, 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 the best of luck and let them figure it out for themselves. And, and I think that's what we're seeing. You know, Peter Zihan has been calling this for a long time, but I, I think it does tie back to the fact that, much to the surprise of American leaders, the U.S. has pivoted from a deep importer of energy to the world's predominant energy superpower once again. And where you sit in that relationship really matters, militarily, geopolitically and economically i guess within the within the political class how how far and how prevalent is that thinking emerge right i mean it's quite a it's a whatever that would be a 73 year policy shift or so from you know obviously the the meetings with the house of saud back in the well you know 19, 1945 and the the subsequent di dynamic and drive of all american foreign policy is that beyond just sort of, I guess, the elements of the Republican Party moving back towards isolationism? How, how prevalent is that recognition that there is the no, no, no longer the need to police those energy flows? Yeah, I don't know how much of it is conscious versus subconscious, but there is undoubtedly, and we live in flyover country in the U.S., and so we, we see it with our own eyes and hear it with our own ears. There's a palpable fatigue with foreign adventures. I mean, it, let's just call it like it is. The, the recent track record of U.S. military conflict is not a glorious one, be it the collapse of our position in Afghanistan, the war in Vietnam. Lord knows what our objectives are against the Houthis and whether we'll be able to, to achieve them. I, it seems like we just you know, stumble about the world 
there's a, there's a strong sector of the U.S. political system that is just always looking for a war. If you just listen to the Lindsey Grahams of the world, some of the things that come out of their mouths are really staggering and dangerous. And yet they have significant political influence. And so on the one hand, you have this trend towards energy independence, really energy superpower, which is, have we argued recently, one of the reasons why the U.S. has been able to avoid a recession, by the way, despite skyrocketing interest rates. But on the other hand, you have this old school American superpower, yeah, 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 you know, fire missiles at everybody crowd that still has an enormous amount of power in Washington, D.C. And we're seeing the sort of the last throes of this domestic conflict playing out in the disagreements about how we should go about um, executing our geopolitical strategy. I think this continued popularity of Trump needs to be recognized for what it is. It's a protest vote against the current uniparty system that runs huge deficits, borrows from tomorrow to splurge on today, is deeply corrupt, and has gotten, into us, uh, uh, gotten us into a, a series of just undeniably tragic wars. Look at Libya. Look, I mean, what are we doing in Syria? Have we declared war on Syria? Why does the U.S. have bases in Syria? Did the Syrian government invite us there? I don't remember my congressperson casting a vote to go to war with Syria, and yet Iranian missile strikes on U.S. bases in Syria are being sold in the U.S. news as a reason for us to go to war with mm -hmm. Iran. It, it's, it's really amazing when you take a step back and look at it. But the long-term trend that we started this sort of part of the discussion with, uh, we believe, is the U.S. is pulling away. They're not gone yet, but the, as the rest of the world begins to realize that maybe this 80-year era uh, is beginning to end, uh, you're going to see a sort of a balkanization of, of global trade, which is necessarily inflationary, but that's the coming reality. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Evidently, as well, you're seeing China move in foreign policy, uh, particularly around energy, closer to the Middle East. And a catalyst to that is the events going on right now as we speak around the Straits of Hormuz and so forth, you know, um, and those trade flows being uh, imperiled. Can you just give us the, the flip side of the coin and what you see going on in the Middle East at the moment as it relates to those energy flows going eastwards? Well, this will be a true test of Chinese leadership, won't it? I mean, it's pretty undeniable that they have a far better relationship with the likes of Iran um, than we do to the extent that Iran can be leveraged to get the situation in, with the Houthis in Yemen under control. We would assume it would be in China's best interest to do so. Now, the U.S. Might not, might not like China playing such a, a role, uh, which would, of course, elevate their status in the region. But, you know, we truly are at a, at, a, at a dangerous time. And look, back to the discussion of peak oil and so on. Like, if war truly spread across the entire Middle East, the oil won't be trading at $70 a barrel for very long. We're the first to say that we're always one major geopolitical crisis away from huge spikes in inelastic commodities. And that is the danger. That is the risk to the economy. And, you know, with the U.S. presidential election coming up, man, it's hard to see how provoking a catastrophe 
is in anybody's interest, let alone the Biden administration's. Jamie Dimon was talking at Davos yesterday um, and was talking similarly, right? There are huge challenges and obstacles ahead. And, you know, the Democrats at their own peril um, ignore some of the, the core, um, you know, the, the reasons why people are, are voting for Trump and, and a lot of this huge uncertainty that's out there. The volatility in the world driven by geopolitics, driven by economics and these many circumstances, countries find themselves in circumstances around the world they've never been in before, right? This, the level of debt, the lack of consumer demand versus investment in China's case. Also, population declines. Uh, we've covered on this podcast as well. It, it, we are in unprecedented territory. You have what is a, a powder keg in the Middle East right now. This could quickly develop into a more regional conflict. What are you thinking about that? What do you, you know? What do you think the risk is there, and where does Russia come into that? Because again, another source of geopolitical uncertainty. The, the October seventh, of course, was a tragic day uh, that we all remember, when Hamas, you know, provoked the current situation by committing unspeakable atrocities. That very day, Lindsey Graham was on Fox News demanding that we carpet bomb Iranian refineries. This is. You know, maybe this isn't getting much play overseas, but I remember being taken aback by the sheer nuttiness of that proposal. You know, the, one of the reasons why you don't provoke wars is because you might lose them once in a while. We're in a very dangerous situation. The conflict in Ukraine is not going well for NATO. I think even the hardline supporters of Ukraine and our efforts to support them would acknowledge that support for continued and unlimited funding for this endeavor is waning. Putin is nothing if not a shrewd operator and is, looks set to press his advantage. Russian and Iranian missile capabilities are perhaps uh, a little stronger than the Lindsey Grahams of the world believe. What happens if, after a series of tit-for-tat exchanges, a, a carrier is sunk? Heaven forbid. What happens then, Paul? Right, like this could very quickly escalate into something very, very dangerous. And I think proper diplomats would be mindful to choose their words a little carefully and to seek opportunities to de-escalate, if for no other reason than their own political skin. Because I don't think, the, you know, you talked about the powder keg in the Middle East. The U.S. political situation is a powder keg. I mean, it, just stepping backwards, and, and we have no partisan axe to grind either way. We pride ourselves on being ideologues, not partisans, but you have the clear front runner of one of the two major parties being indicted by the Justice Department of his political rival. It's just unthinkable to have been able to say such a sentence five years ago, and it's like becoming normalized. Whatever you think of Trump and whatever you think of January 6th, that statement in isolation is a remarkable thing to say. And where that goes from here is the slippery slopes. And so if you have both a powder keg in the Middle East and then a domestic one in one of the main, you know, a domestic powder keg uh, in the main sort of Western military force in the region, things could get ugly very quickly. Yes. And, you know, we, we're in unprecedented political times with 
post-populism, you know, uh, or populism post-truth and polarization, as uh, the the Revenge of Power book, which I recommend, you know, talks about. And then also technologically as well, right? I mean, one of the things you mentioned there about sinking a carrier, you know, we're in a new paradigm of, of, of war, uh, you know, and war is a catalyst to change. And what we've seen in, in going on in, between, in Ukraine, obviously, is the use of very low cost drones to do incredible damage. And so some of these things that were probably unthinkable 20 years ago are now well within the realm of possibility to do substantial damage to US assets. And yeah, it's, it is a very, you know, the volatility just continues. I guess in our, in our final part, staying with China, you talk rather eloquently in one of your posts about geopolitical warfare. <laughs> you know, uh, and and this concept that essentially China at the debasement of its environment, we talked about this a fair amount, has obviously captured much of the technology, the, the supply chains of the technology that will fuel the energy transition. And at the moment, the West is poised for a slew of incredibly cheap EVs coming on shore and, you know, cutting the, the price of the lowest cost from, you know, I think the lowest cost car at the moment in the United States is 48000 And even with proposed tariffs, these EVs will be hitting US shores, European shores in the 20000 range. So can you just give us, and, and at the same time, we're seeing these graphite controls going on, a key element in battery technology. Can you just talk to us a little about your some of your, your thought pieces around that, this idea that at the debasement of its environment, China has really captured this market, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, geopolitical warfare, as you mentioned, was the catchy name. We gave our first of a couple of pieces that riff on this topic. But you know, when you think about the world of heavy manufacturing, cost is king. And most commodities are made to standard specifications, and basically producers are price takers, right? Forced to accept whatever the going market rate is for the goods. And so the only handle that an industry can directly manipulate to make profit is cost. Now, in theory, cost differences among producers should be driven by technology and innovation. And if you have episodes of creative destruction where one group of companies brings to market new technology that puts another group of technologies um, uh, or another group of companies out of business. Well, such episodes of creative destruction are on balance uh, quite healthy. But in the world of commodities, the reality on the ground often differs from theory in one really important way. The number one cost is the cost of abating the environmental damage you do as you perform the extraction of the valuable goods that you then refine and smelt and purify and send on their way downstream into the economy. And if a country such as China chooses to monopolize a critical supply chain, one of the easiest ways for it to do is to simply loosen their pollution controls, allow their domestic manufacturers to get away with significant local environmental damage recognizing that that is a price that you can pay for the strategic advantage of the economic power that comes from global monopoly. And they have done this over and over and over again. They've done it in the solar supply chain. They've done it in the battery supply chain. They've done it in rare earth metals, which are critical for motors of all types. As we like to say, because we have direct personal experience with our time in industry, when your competitor's idea 
of a water treatment plant is a pipeline to the river, it is impossible to compete with that company on price. And yet, the same Western companies who set up glossy booths at COP meetings and love to brag about their sustainability efforts are the first to demand that Western manufacturers of critical commodities meet the market price that China is offering them, knowing that they've stolen the technology, they've degraded their environment, and they operate in a way that would be wholly unacceptable in the West. And so either we have to support our domestic manufacturers in critical supply chains, or we have to accept the fact that China is going to control the outcome uh, in ways that we might not like. It is amazing to see it happen over and over again. And you mentioned graphite. They have a controlling interest in graphite. I mean, if you just look at the world graphite producers, they either directly or indirectly control uh, up to 80% of the market. So if we want to hit them with chip uh, bans for their high-end supercomputing technologies, they can just turn around and cut our knees out at the bottom with all manner of critical things. Graphite, aluminum, magnesium, rare earths, polysilicon ignits, polysilicon wafers. They own 90%, 95 to 100% of the entire front four steps of the solar supply chain, which, by the way, leverages significant forced labor uh, in key parts of their production. Uh, and yet, you know, we continue to mandate that communities buy these things, which only serves China's interest. And so we wanted to highlight that in local environmental controls are positive, but they're elective. And we should be offsetting those costs because the market cannot properly discount national security mm. risks. And this is part of a broader China story, but a world story. And uh, Michael Pettis, who's at the University of Peking, talks a lot about this as well. Is You've got obviously um, China is, is, for the moment, solving the disappointing growth in their eyes through continued just structural investment rather than consumer demand. And we obviously have the Belt and Road over the last 10 years, uh, which is part of securing that global supply chain for many of these critical metals. And, you know, there is a story there about how a lot of the, the infrastructure that was built is now turning out to be subpar and crumbling. And, and these countries now in essentially in debt traps. But all this leading up to Michael Pett is talking about the fact that when you start to have this creep back from global standards in trade, deglobalization, you just get the rise of protectionism, and that could be the characterization of the next decade. Is that something you're, you're seeing, and, and that would have a profound effect on the commodities markets, and indeed the end price? I mean, we look at what happened in, in Ukraine. Europe's energy crisis was sold very efficiently and very effectively, in part by some good luck around warm winters, but more specifically about how quickly the markets mobilized to deploy LNG there and other sources of energy, in a world where we are seeing protectionism forced upon countries as a result of just these dynamics you're talking about, that could have a profound effect. Let me give you a yes and, because I think there's another dimension at play with China's objectives. The more they control critical choke points in important supply chains, the less likely it is that the U.S. can embark on a direct kinetic conflict with China much of the U.S. military supply chains at some point or another depend on a critical input from China. They've done this on purpose. I think they've outplayed us. Take rare earth metals. China doesn't mine all the rare earth metals in the world. But one of the dirtiest steps in the production of pure rare earth metals 
is the concentration step. And China does all of that in the world. So you could cite a mine, a rare earth mine in the United States, that you know, the stuff that comes out of that mine is not yet finished, and it needs to go on a boat to China to get finished. They have 100% control over the dirtiest part of the supply chain, which is back to geopolitical warfare, their objective strategy. Now, if we need a half a dozen or a dozen of these critical materials for our economy to continue to operate, that's pretty good leverage at the bargaining table, a pretty good deterrent, one might say, to the neocons of Washington, D.C. and their longstanding objective to you know, get the U.S. entangled in as many wars as possible. And I, I think, to their credit, the Chinese have been prudent in this regard. They have made a calculated decision that degrading their environment is beneficial both from an economic and a geopolitical national defense perspective. And in a world where protectionist policies, like your question was alluding to, where such a world spontaneously evolves, China's in pretty good shape. This is why, of course, they bought Syngenta, because they have a, a fear of their population not having enough food, and they wanted to get all of the genetically modified seed technologies for domestic use. Um, they've been very strategic at a national level in a way that I think many in the West, driven by the quarterly pressures of Wall Street and earnings expectations of publicly traded companies. You know, there are benefits to that system, but there are also drawbacks. And one of the big drawbacks is seeding power to our geopolitical enemies. Mm. Well, it's easy to have a 15-year plan and also compromise your environment when you don't have an electorate, right, as well, right? I mean, it's, it's, oh, it's no question about it. fundamental differences in, our, in, in politics. Just taking a step back, and, and I would encourage people to go find uh, your, your, you and your team's work on Substack, which I know is absolutely thriving. What strikes me about this conversation is if we were to have this, I'm making it up, right, 10 years ago, the world was a much more boring place. What strikes me about this conversation is if you're uh, in, in leadership or in, in any role, you know, looking at projects within the commodities world, suddenly the, the conversation has shifted from one of, for the most part, economics and, and, and local policies and so forth, to really now having to weave in so much more about political risk, security risk. It's, it's a very different landscape for organizations to be investing in whether it's hydrocarbon economies or the or the energy transition economies, I mean, you know, how are organisations you've seen starting to sort of bring in the talent to be able to tackle that, or use firms and outs- such as yours to to get that lens? Are you seeing a real drive pick up in demand for this kind of analysis? Yeah, I'd say, and there's been some unexpected benefits from all of this as well. There's an, a, a manufacturing construction boom in the U.S. that is unprecedented. The need to bring supply chains closer to their end use and the days where you could just assume that just in time would always work are, are over. There are benefits to that and there are downsides to that. We've talked a lot about the downsides, but you know, the, one of the reasons the U.S. has escaped an election is because it's, it's undergoing a manufacturing boom, running huge fiscal deficits to do so. Some would argue that this can't end well, but it certainly allows the current administration to extend and pretend beyond the election, for example. This is, this is a really remarkable thing, what's occurring in the U.S. because of this bounty of hydrocarbons. You know, countries with an enormous amount of hydrocarbons and, and that run fiscal deficits with minimal recourse uh, rarely fall into recession. And I think that's why the U.S. is doing so much better than Europe, for example, which is energy-starved and in the process of deindustrializing. 
But yes, absolutely. I think there is a rising interest in how energy impacts the global economy. Whether that interest is maintained as the world experiences a, at least a temporary period of abundant and excess energy, which we undeniably have today, remains to be seen. But um, the popularity of our Substack, I think, derives from the fact that we're one of the few commentators in the space who have direct industrial experience, and we bring that lens to the analysis in a way that those who have only ever worked in government or, or at a university perhaps are less able to do. Yeah, and um, no doubt delighting and annoying people in equal parts as well, <laughs> um, you know, uh, along the way, as you say, ideologues rather than um, partisan. And it, it is it is a very, you know, it's it's also a very shifting landscape as well, right? If you were to go back three years ago, the just fascinating on this podcast, one of our most downloaded episodes early on was about what is ESG, Whereas today, you know, the most downloaded episodes are, are very much focused on the hydrocarbon economy because that's where a lot of the uncertainty is and a lot of the change is going on and the need to sort of map out and, and position uh, companies and, and, and projects within a, a very complex picture. Yeah, and I think to circle back to the very beginning of this conversation, it doesn't take but a 3 to 5% swing in supply to see a doubling or tripling of primary energy. And... Primary energy is way more important than its contribution to GDP, at least its direct contribution. It, it, it travels all the way down the supply chain directly to the consumer. Just consider how much diesel, for example, is used in the, when you order something on Amazon and it shows up at your house the next day. The miracle of modern living is powered by fossil fuels today, and it will be for decades to come. But because swings as low as 3% can tilt the world from surplus to deficit, Measuring the flows and analyzing where we are in real time is, as we said, we think the first job of any analyst. And as you mentioned, the, the partisan versus ideologue, when we made the call that um, you know, we're seeing a glut of LNG, for example, and the US is swimming in hydrocarbons and the very definition of oil is undergoing a semantic shift, many people who are sort of, for whatever reason, would prefer a world with higher energy prices, maybe they have investments in that space, got like, viscerally angry with us as though we had been disloyal. Um, our job, of course, is not to hope for a market outcome, but to try and analyze it and make sense of it, which is something we intend to do consistently. You know, we intend to be around for decades, and uh, the best way to do that is to continue to call it as we see it in real time. And sometimes we're wrong. And when we're wrong, we admit it and learn from it and correct it and, and publish it uh, to our readers. And I think our loyal subscribers do appreciate that, and I think that's part of the magic of what we do. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I will put links to your Substack in the show notes. And, and people can obviously see, also subscribe to your free newsletter as well, which connects you to the Substack for, for further reading. And, you know, I hope we can have you back on later on in the year and see where we stand in all this, because I do find getting your take is a, is a refreshing and, and different look at uh, some of the real core challenges, and many of them that there are, uh, in the energy and commodities world. Hey, right, Paul, it's always a pleasure. I'd come back on every week if you'd have me. So just let us know and uh, we'll, be, we'll be right here. Good man. Thanks, Duberg. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts 
focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.